Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Gav shares the techniques and product leadership experiences he uses when building services for organizations like NHS Digital and HMRC to solve problems for their users. He discusses how experiencing agile product delivery in government opened his eyes to a better way of building products and the value that hyper-specialists like UX designers and user researchers bring to multidisciplinary product teams. He also plays my three-card challenge to share his favorite UX tool, favored technique, and a trend he sees in the future. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So my guest this time is Gav Adam. Uh, Gav has worn many hats over the years uh, as a technology leader, strategist. Uh, he's done product. He's done uh, senior technology roles and a bunch of other stuff, which I'm going to be asking him about. Um, hi, Gav. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Mike. It's uh, good to be here. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about um, what you're up to at the moment, the kind of work you do and kind of how you got into that. So I think it's quite difficult to pigeonhole any one thing. Uh, so the way I tend to sort of badge myself is I solve problems. And typically I solve those problems using technology. And right. sometimes it's with people, sometimes it's with process, but typically it's with software. And uh, most recently for the past how many years now, I've been building services that hopefully solve problems for people. Right. And I know one of those kind of organizations you work with and some of the services you've been building was, was NHS Digital. Is that right? Yeah, I've been working within NHS Test and Trace within right. the test side right. last year, building some of the COVID testing capabilities. So what they call the asymptomatic testing. And uh, so that's lateral flow testing in places like schools. Also the international borders testing, which we had to do in about 10 days straight which right. is a little bit hair-raising. Um, so I've been doing that, and I've also been doing a lot of work with uh, other public departments like HMRC as well. So things like yes. ETAC to help out, the sugar tax, more recently digital services tax, otherwise known as the Amazon tax, and right. uh, a number of other things along the way too. So you're a busy guy with lots of balls in the air by the sound of it. Tell me about kind of taking a step back. How did you get into digital? Give us a sort of quick, brief, potted overview of your of your kind of career to date. How did you kind of end up where you are now? And so, how much of that was planned and how much of that was kind of coincidence? Uh, I think it, it kind of happened to me. Um, I, I'd, I'd say it was a sort of an evolutionary process. And essentially, I was either doing systems engineering or deployments and you know, implementations of stuff at, at mainly big banks back at the sort of early noughties and end of the 90s. And I realized that I liked building things. I liked solving problems. And the the way I could see it best for me was to go into, well, what, what then didn't really exist, which was the world of product. 
And that was still very much an emerging subject. And it was really only when I was working with a, a small consultancy firm in, firm in the city who were trying to pivot into being a product organization that I started to really get to grips with the concepts such as agile and lean thinking and all of those types of, sort of tools that probably all of us use on a regular basis. And and gradually I sort of started going down this, this rabbit hole and worked out that actually the way that we'd been doing things had kind of been the wrong way. And you know, I always thought as a product person that you know, my ideas were the best ideas. I knew what the solution was. And right. it was really just about making sure everyone else were beaten to submission into building it. Um, that I ran with for probably about 10 years, I would have thought, in terms of that sort of belligerent, rather arrogant way of doing things. And it was only really when I first started working with the government departments that I actually saw there's probably a better way of doing it. And it was more because at that point, you're working with real hyper-specialists. You know, on those types of, of teams... They are proper multidiscipline teams where you've got representation from user researchers, interaction designers, content designers, product, everyone else. And and the danger of being a product person is generally you are a generalist, so you know enough to be dangerous in each of those disciplines. But the reality right. is you don't obsess about each and each and every single one of those areas, which means that you're probably not as good as people who do. So I realized that actually there are people who are better at these things than I was. And it was really, I guess, the sort of stakeholder engagement side that I started to learn really valuable lessons, which is that it doesn't matter how good your solution is, unless you get other people to buy into it, there's no point in building it. So for me, it then really un it turned from being, right, my job is to come up with a solution, is it pivoted to being, my job is to help people understand what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you need really good evidence. And the best way to do that is to use proper UX techniques like user research and interaction design, doing lots of prototyping, iteration, test, learn, continuous improvement. Um, and if you can do things like record those sessions, if you can get those sort of 30 second sound bites, it can really influence people's thinking. And I, I worked out gradually over time that, yes, I might have that solution in, in mind, but I've got to get people to believe in it. And the easiest way is for them to think it's their idea. So getting that collection of evidence together and, and real research that you can stand behind and go, well, look, don't just listen to me. I've told you this won't work. That never wins the battle. If you get them to look yeah. at it and go, oh, my goodness, yeah. yeah, we've got a problem here. So, yeah, so what I think you're telling me is that if we were to do this, we might solve that problem. You know, great idea. When they, when people are fed that sort of uh, way of doing things, they mm. bite onto it, and they're far more invested in the overarching solution. And as a result, you actually get things done, and it's painless. You don't end up having too many fights. So, right. Sorry, that was a rather long-winded way, way of, of, of getting there, but hopefully it kind of illustrates the point. Absolutely. No, 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 I totally agree. And that resonates very much with my own experience. And uh, yeah, as you say, the kind of hyper-specialist and, and, and bringing people with you on the journey. So kind of in terms of the impact user-centered design has on the work of, of, let's say, a team that you're working with kind of day-to-day, -day, how, how would you say that? Well, 
I think it's one of those areas which has really, really radically transformed over the certainly over the last 10 years. What used to happen, in my experience, was you'd build something, you'd build some software, and, and the job of a UXer was to make it pretty. Right, you know, we've got a thing, make it pretty. <laughs> make and it pop. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to just, it, it, it does what it needs to do, but we need it to do it, like, in a sexy way. And, you know, people started to, to look at the sort of the design language of the likes of Apple and everything else. And they thought, oh, well, we can do that. It's just a case of using nice graphics, using, you know, bevels or no bevels, you know, flat design, Bauhaus, all these other things. Let's just, you know, jump on this trend. And they kind of missed the point. Right. Now I think people are beginning to understand that actually UX isn't just make it pretty. It's proper service design. It's solving a problem end to end. How do people get into the situation in the first place? And what do they do after they're finished using it? And it's digital has now morphed into something that's so entwined with how we live our lives. You have to look at the context of usage as much as anything else. Yeah, I've my my seventy eight year old father is a complete techno no no. Uh, he won't have a smartphone. But he does have a laptop that he uses to check his stocks and shares and various other bits and pieces and, and gets scared by people sending him, you know, fraudulent emails from HMRC or wherever else it is. Right. And the, the danger that we face today is that there's a lot of, it's a massive range on that scale of digital inclusion. And we've got to be a lot more mindful of how that can be used, abused and interacted with by the whole gamut of society not just this particular thing um particularly when you're doing either public service work or more sort of consumer so b2c type interactions right right so talk us through a typical day as a as a product lead or as a product owner from kind of some of the roles you've been doing well, other than being woken up at ungodly ads by young children, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I'm yeah, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> I uh, and and then obviously being fully caffeinated, it's really about understanding what needs to be done that day. So depending on the phase or the life cycle of the of the service you're working with, there may may be different activities. Um, and you know, I'm lucky to be working with with a group of guys who we've we've actually. Sp- spent nearly four years or five years working together so we're we've evolved our processes and methods and we're sort of in living in almost like a post agile era because there is complete cohesion and trust that's been established which is very 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 unusual in this type of environment so typically we'll start off with a stand-up where we just talk about right after we've done the 15 minutes of, of chatting you know stuff because we now all live in a remote world as opposed to yep. being face-to-face. So we don't have that human interaction, those sort of brief snatches of conversation. We sort of formalize that by having a, a coffee with, with each other first thing in the morning. And then we just get down to business and say, right, what's going on today? What's on the timetable? Who needs to do what? What are the various challenges or, or areas we need to focus our efforts on? And then it'll be a case of doing whatever sessions which are required. So it might be a a refinement session it might be a workshop uh, for instance uh, a naming workshop is one we had to do yesterday or it might be going through prototyping coming up with various design challenges or sometimes um sort of when i put 
a different hat on, I'll be doing things like assessing services. So I'll be an assessor doing GDS assessments for HMRC, for instance. Right. That, that's particularly interesting. And I, I'd like to come back to that a bit later, um, hear more about kind of your role as an assessor. But going back to kind of the team and the way you work, I'm interested to know kind of with a product hat on, user researchers, interaction designers, kind of the other members of the team, how can they best um, surface what they're learning and kind of what they're doing in a way that helps the rest of the team improve and develop the service in the best way possible? I think it, it depends on the maturity of the team. But right. certainly when you're first starting with a team, it's really useful to get involved, get, get as many people involved in what's going on as possible. Uh, People sometimes say user research is a team sport. And uh, I know that's kind of a throwaway comment, but actually it is. And yeah. it's really useful to have different eyes on the session, be able to do sort of uh, capturing thoughts along the way, taking notes, and then feeding back after those sessions are over. I yeah. really like to try and ensure that there's at least one developer in each one of those sessions. Right, yep. BA's there, often I'm there scrum master whoever and actually the best things to have in there are stakeholders so people who you know believe that digital is this cosmic ordering service and you know they're, they're the ones with the money so they want this thing and they need it and it's got to look like this and i want it in red um yeah. it's really yeah, useful yeah. for them to actually see real people because they're you know they're, they're forcing these things on them sometimes certainly in the world of government and it's only when they actually experience or witness what's going on on the other side of the fence that they realize that actually their ivory tower needs to have windows in it. Yes. Yeah. No, all, again, all of that sounds very familiar. Um, how can, sort of following on from that then, how can uh, UX folks, if I can call them that broadly, ensure that they have the biggest impact on the teams that they're working with and the services they're actually uh, developing? I think be really clear and stitch whatever you do into a, a narrative. People love stories. And it, for me, it's far more powerful to be able to say, look, this is what we've done. This is how we've done it. This is why we've done it. And if you can tell a story and present that back, the, the sort of the regular sessions, such as the sort of show and tells, that really, really helps. And that's where you really need to make sure you've got you know, your product lead, or a delivery manager, a scrum master, call it what you will, corralling people into those sessions and keep it really, really succinct and right. on the yeah. money. It, there's no point in, in saying, right, let's sit and watch a 15-minute video of someone clicking mm -hmm. stuff on the screen. Mm -hmm. If you can distill your key learnings and findings into 30-second sound bites, yeah. Yeah. if that, 15-second sound bites, even better because particularly when we've got, you know, that, that uh, dare I say, Microsoft, Microsoft Teams fatigue and meeting fatigue, right. yes. working yep. in remote while you, uh, remote style rather, you have to try and compress that now. We've got to be far more punchy about those sort of sessions. So trying to keep it, it brief, but also engage, that helps. Right, and, right. And and also try and keep it as co collaborative as possible. So this is what we've seen. These are what we feel are the impacts. Yep. Now, how can we solve for this? Like I said, with a product person, they'll probably already have an idea. Pretty sure an interaction designer or service designer will, will think that too. And probably a user researcher will. And certainly a developer will. Yeah. But 
it's it's really useful to sort of draw on that whole wisdom of crowds thing mm. and get everyone bought into it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no one's yeah. got a monopoly on ideas. No, absolutely. And you talked about the na- the importance of narrative uh, in terms of kind of bringing stakeholders with you. More broadly, what kind of personality traits do you think are important in in uh, in the in you know for someone to be a good user researcher or interaction designer? Let's say from your experience, without sounding too sort of um, touchy feely, empathy is is the key thing, right? And. Yep. It's really important that people just listen. And they might be the smartest person in the room, but they don't need to broadcast it every five minutes. It's <laughs> um, it's not about us. It's about the user. Yeah. And listening to people, listening to people on the team, respect and, and confidence and trust. Yeah. But that's really more about the team dynamic as opposed to the individual. Right. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned before the role of GDS assessor. For those who are listening to this who are not familiar with what GDS is or the assessment process, could you just give us a kind of overview of that? Okay, so um, effectively, the government digital standard is actually now called the government service standard. And this is the UK government, obviously, we're talking about. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, that that started off really by the Covenant Office, in which is one of the government departments here, back in, I think it was 2011. and the problem they were trying to solve is that there's a lot of money spent in technology and services being delivered across government departments, uh, across local government, across you know any public service. Mm. The problem with that is that typically they cost a lot of money. There was no uniformity. There were no collective learnings. There was no shared experience. And it was very jarring and, and, and for users when you suddenly go to a government service website like, I don't know, uh, go to get your driver's license and then you want to get a passport and the whole thing just looks completely different. And there's, there's challenges around trust because people see different branding, different interaction styles, they don't know what they're doing. And um, those were just a, a small fraction of the areas they were trying to deal with. But ultimately they wanted to be able to give good value to the taxpayer and make sure things are being built consistently yep. and uh, and well and delivering what was required. So they put together this, what they call the government digital service standard, which I think originally was something like 22 or 23 different points. It then got cut down after a couple of years to 18 points. Today it's now 14 points. Mm. And essentially it's a, it's a blueprint of how to build digital services or actually, it's not just digital these days, it is how to build services. Mm-hmm. And I have to confess, I was a bit of a skeptic. You know, I thought, why oh, so? Great. Well, you don't really think of, of it being a particularly dynamic or impressive environment, public sector. You know, I When I first started working with HMRC, I was honestly expecting to, to walk into grey cubicle land right. and <laughs> be dealing with, with drones and, and mainframes. And that, yeah. you know, I was brought in to do some agile coaching and to do some you know, product leadership and stuff and mentoring. Uh, I'd do a six-month gig and off I'd trot and go and play my trade somewhere else. Actually, walking into that situation and seeing that actually, for the first time ever, I've got a full team of hyper-specialists. I'm not having to pretend to do a bit of UX, a bit of this, a bit of user research and, and switch hats all the time and, and just clobber stuff together. I've got people that I can say, well, actually, you know what? 
really use you setting up these five sessions over the next week with these particular types of users so we can get this type of information back. And I realized that, wow, this is actually a really, really great way of doing things. And I now would apply that and do apply that to any work I do in the private sector. For me, it is very much a best practice. And at the heart of that is all around user-centered design. In fact, I, I personally am more of a subscriber to, to, I guess I'd call it golden design, where, yes, the user is very much at the forefront of your thinking. But you've also then got to consider constraints, so all your technology constraints, budget constraints, all the other things. And then also, what are the business goals that you need to try and achieve? And at that intersection point, that's where real innovation happens. And and the assessment part of that is that at certain points in the evolution of a service, as it goes through the various stages of development and design, there are examinations, one for a better word, a kind of uh, structured series of questions that are asked by a panel of the of the team designing it. Uh, and there's, there are assessors and your role uh, is one of the assessors, correct? And correct, just tell yes, us a little so, bit about that. So uh, I'm, I'm a lead assessor for right. these types of things. So what yep. happens is the service will rock up at, a different phase in their life cycle. So typically we divide that into four different stages. There's discovery, alpha, beta, and live. Yep. Now, typically you'll do an assessment in alpha and a beta and then live. And that's really just a, an opportunity for typically other government departments, because normally a panel, if it's, an, if, if it's a GDS assessment, it'll be staffed by people from different government departments. And they'll kick the tires and do a sniff test, really, to make sure right. that the, the service standard has been adhered to. Right. And really, when you look at what it is that, that people need to do, it should just be how we roll as teams. You know, it should be about you know, solving whole problems for users, identifying what their needs are, making sure you're choosing the right technology and tools. There's a, there's a myriad, I won't list off all 14 points of the standard. You've got the T-shirt, though. Very, very much so. And, uh, but it, I, it, some people can be quite scared by that process. And they'll go, oh, my goodness, we've got an assessment in a week's time. Oh, gosh, help. You know, what do we need to prepare? Mm-hmm. But again, it's back to that telling a story, creating a narrative. Mm-hmm. If, these are the way, if this is being done properly, if you're rolling the way you should be rolling, so working in a truly agile fashion, not just doing cargo cult type oh we've got to do retrospectives we've got to do sprint planning we've got to we've got to run scrum that's not agile it's Uh, are we delivering working software over comprehensive uh, documentation the the values of agile as opposed to right this is a cookbook if you're doing that and you you're working correctly actually it should be quite a good experience for you to be able to come back and say look this is what we've done Uh, again it's back to to what i was saying earlier about yes you might have that best solution but you've got to be able to evidence it and be able to weave that into your narrative and your storytelling of, right, this is the problem we're trying to solve for. These are the things we've seen along the way. This is the evidence we've got to support the hypothesis either we're going to test or that we're going to actually solve for in the next phase. And it gives you an opportunity to sort of have other people who are very good at what they do look, look at it and provide... I, I normally see it as almost like a trusted helper or friend be able to say, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Have you thought about this? And often when you're working with a problem, you're so close to that problem space that you don't, you lose a bit of objectivity. So having someone else step back 
and provide their perspective, that can be helpful. It can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge too as well because they'll no doubt have quite strong opinions. But I always think it's a really good thing to be challenged. And mm. if you can't justify why you've done something, then it's quite clear that you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Mm. So Absolutely, absolutely. And do you find that some of the people coming in front of assessment panels can be defensive or evasive, or is it very much a kind of open and collaborative process? Really people have asked to justify why they've done things. Sometimes, obviously, people, if they're not confident with why they've done it, then they can default to a slightly, I guess, you know, defensive position. I mean, I'm just interested to know if that's an experience you've had or whether people tend to be. I've had a load of different experiences in right. this space. So, but on both sides of the table, where. Of course, yeah. I've ended up actually being quite aggressive almost because the team aren't being able to articulate what they've actually been doing. Right. And they've gone so far outside the reservation that actually, you know right. what, this, they need to be brought back in and told, yeah. no, guys, fine, but actually you need to do these things and here's why. Right. And in which case they'll fail, or sorry, right. we don't use the term fail. You will not have met the, the service standard. standard. That's right, yeah. But at other times, um, I found it really quite frustrating where – People uh, on, on panels, I shouldn't really be critical, perhaps, but uh, you'll find people are being really, really dogmatic. Right. And yes, there are things like design patterns. Yes, there's, there's certain things that you, we have to do, but there are some times where you actually have to be a bit more nimble and you have mm -hmm. to adapt and you have to respond to change. And yeah. it's not always about, sticking religiously to a particular design standard if you've got evidence to support why you have done something differently then that should be understood and it should also feed back into the process a, a good panel will will get it yeah a less experienced panel perhaps won't right right and i found personally it's been quite helpful because I, i'm often sitting on the other side of the you know as an assessor mm. i've been able to say look I understand why you're asking this, but actually, hold on, time out. You really need to consider that we're at a particular stage here, mm. which is alpha. You are really running an assessment at this stage, which is considering us, you know, at a point where we've got things done. You know, that's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And, and you mentioned, you, you touched already on kind of the difference between public and private sector, because obviously what we've been talking about in the main is, is public sector work. Can you think of specific kind of differences in the way that the private sector operates and kind of does things like this? Uh, well, broadly in terms of kind of developing software and building services? Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's an interesting area to explore further in as much as Tend, you tend to have a lot less luxury when it comes to the soft skills, let's say. So being able to have a truly multidisciplinary team. Right. And You're talking about got, the private sector now. Yes, very yeah. much so. That there's, a, there's much more focus on what your cost model is. Right. So you'll often have to rely on, say, a service designer who will come in and do user research as well as interaction design right because you won't have the luxury of being able to afford both or you won't have things like the content designer right that might be a shared resource across other teams 
So you tend to do a lot more beg- begging, borrowing and stealing in that in that space. And what impact does that have on the process of, of designing, testing and building software? Um, I think that there's a, a, a much less there's much less much less of an appreciation of iterative build and release it's very much a case of what's your roadmap what are you committing to why hasn't it been done and uh, people talk about computer science it's not computer science it's it's art and art is emergent and (laughs) it's not prescriptive and there's all sorts of things you'll find along the way that will potentially cause you to go in a different direction so it's a lot more challenging i found working within the the private sector space where you've got people who are saying well look we we said we're going to get this thing six months ago why haven't you done that thing so it's uh i'm a big believer in making sure you can release often and show measurable improvements and growth at every stage because that lets people understand your process a bit better and then they step back a bit more and and realize that actually you're not just sort of living in a a little bit of a vacuum where they're throwing money into it and waiting for Mm. something to pop out Mm. they're again engaged and involved but that this is particularly ux and user research in particular and good design it's still quite embryonic i think Mm. within that private sector space Mm. tell me about what you love about what you do gav oh gosh um conversely what frustrates or challenges you the thing i like is that you know i'm I have the attention span of an average goldfish, I suppose, is how I describe <laughs> it. And what I do is meddle, prod, right. poke, ask questions. And I love being able to look at something and have an idea, talk to others and rely on them to actually go off and do the real clever thing of thinking and exploration. Uh, yep. I love being able to say, oh, what about this? And have we done that? and look for those edge cases and come up with ideas. And I really like working with people who challenge me. And that that's the fun bit. I love it when people go, Gav, you're mad. Why, why is that a good idea? And I go, ah, actually, you know what? You're probably right. Perhaps, perhaps there's a different way of doing things. I enjoy, and I love working with people who know what they're working with and, you know, who are good at what they do. Yeah. The frustration um, is that sometimes things take a little bit too long and that it's it's often a, a rinse and repeat of having to explain to people why things need to be done in a particular way. And, right. and when you say to, explain to people, are those people the, the, the stakeholders you referred to before or members of the team or... Others. I suppose the, the the people, when I say people, it's a slightly more traditional sense of things like project managers right. and people who live by Gantt charts right. and budgets. Yeah. I get that. I completely get that. Yeah. But there's no way that, and the number of times, I, I, 
absolutely lose count of the number of times people have asked me to do estimation of projects, which could take two or three years. And I've been asked to provide sprint plans for two years worth of work. Right. That's not how this works. Mm. You're just going to get yourself into a big, big hole. What what was your response? No. (laughs) (laughs) Simple as that. It is. It's like, sorry, that's not how we work. Mm. What I can do is I can show you and articulate a roadmap, which is aspirational. These are the things we think we know at the moment based on the evidence we have to date. This is what we're hoping to to use and do to address those particular pain points. And this is the sort of timeline we're hoping to adhere to. However, there are certain caveats. Mm. It's subject to change. Mm. And it's, uh, it's aspirational. This is a goal. It's not a commitment. And that's a really bitter pill for people to, to swallow. But again, that's where trying to establish that sort of degree of trust and showing people how you're working all the time and getting them involved in that process starts to energize them. And once they realize it and that we're not just you know taking the piss and that they're, they're throwing millions of pounds onto, into this black hole and guess what? It's going to be delayed. Because guess what? That's what happens with every IT project. Infamously, yep. What I've been very fortunate to do over the past how many years is consistently undercommit and overdeliver. So the the typical one more thing style of of Steve Jobs, let's say. Absolutely love it. It's great to be able to go... Oh, right. Well, you know, we said we were going to do this thing. Well, we've done it. Mm. And guess what? We've also done a little bit more. Mm. And that way, people start to realize that you're trying to do good work. You are doing good work. And they trust your work. Yep. Yep. Very, very important lessons, aren't they? I say a bitter pill to swallow, but a a vital pill, really, for the ultimate success of something. Yeah. a, a, A wise man once said to me, in fact, he was a, a, a permi at uh, HMRC, had been there for nearly 40 years. He said, stakeholders, Gavin, they're like puppies. You have to train them hard at the beginning or they go and shit behind the sofa. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wall poster for us all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, right, last thing. Um, my three-card challenge, and I've been doing this with all my guests. So I've got a tool that you like using uh, or you particularly gravitate towards a technique that you like and obviously this is in the UX space but given with your product hat on maybe it'll be something slightly different so a tool a technique and then a trend that you see uh, in in digital but more specifically in kind of UX over the next kind of year or two or three how does that sound sounds good okay so So I've got so we've got so we've got three cards you can see there's a club, a diamond, and a heart. I'm holding this up to the screen. Choose one. I'll go for a diamond. Uh, 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 that is... Trend. Am I allowed to pick two? Of course. Okay. So there are two things which I, I consider. One is sort of new morphisms. Right. Uh, as far as a sort of design system is concerned. And I know that they're very polarizing. Some people love it. Some people don't. Uh, tell, tell, just explain that for those who aren't familiar with the term. 
So it's it's essentially the new version of skeuomorphism, I guess, is is in a nutshell, and it it just makes things look makes interfaces look almost like plastic, I guess. It's sort of, uh, but I love a drop shadow, and I I love varying contrasts, and I'm a very visual person. So for me, aesthetically, it looks phenomenal. However, as I said, it's quite polarizing because there are certain challenges, particularly around things like accessibility. Yeah. that aren't necessarily easy to solve for. But I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of those in in, in, in user interfaces over the, over the coming years. It, it starts to become a bit of a trend last year, but more and more people seem to be jumping on it. So that's one thing. The other thing, I suspect you're going to see more of the rise of super apps. So, right. and if you Explain. look at a super app, so... The, if you if you go back to the sort of late nineties and, and early noughties, you used to hear this horrible word called portal, right? I want a uh, it, portal. It <laughs> still surfaces alarmingly frequently now, doesn't it? <laughs> oh god, I'd start wanting to sort of bash my head against the wall, cut my wrists, or, or dive out a window whenever someone says portal. But actually, if you think about it, our, our, we have a really sort of personal interaction with these horrible things called mobile phones and, and smart devices and everything else. They, they live yeah. in our pockets. They invade our personal space. And if you look at how people interact with them, they flit in and out of one app to another, constantly bouncing around from one thing to another. And yeah. often they're doing the same thing. And often then it's just a case of slightly context shifting or switching. And... There's, there seem to be um, certainly in uh, in Asia. There's a sort of a trend to be able to combine things like messaging, so that you only have a single messaging app that does WhatsApp, that does Snapchat, that does all these other interactions, but it's in a single place. So right. you are just a user sending messages, as opposed to oh, right now I'm in Facebook Messenger, now I'm in WhatsApp, now I'm in you know. <sighs> whatever what other app sms is it it combines them all and it does seem to be quite a big thing in asia and i can see it increasing it was always shunned by silicon valley but now it's i think going to be more of a thing so watch this space you heard it here first yeah (laughs) great next next card uh let's go hearts so the heart is cool. Um, my favorite tool. Tool. So tool. F- yep. I'd love to say two things, <laughs> but um, from a UX perspective, my favorite thing is Miro. Absolutely mm. love it. It's um, it, for me, it's just such a useful way of being able to coalesce people around a particular area where i've really seen that excel has been at nhs digital and i've been lucky enough to work with some phenomenal service designers and see how they use it and how we've been able to solutionize problem solve understand things and use it as a way of being able to play back to stakeholders and get buy-in it's been great and i absolutely love that as a tool and by Miro, of course, we're referring to that infinite whiteboard technology that, yeah, has become very, very commonly used in our world. And uh, yeah, I agree. I use it every day, and I think it's a game changer. Yeah. 
I also quite like the way you can have there are loads of different plugins and things now. It's it's become its own little ecosystem. Yeah. Nice. Okay, and last one is technique. Depends on the life cycle or the stage mm. uh, where we are in a in a in a product build or service build. But one of the things I quite like doing is um, I refer I probably completely missed the point, but I refer to it as anti pattern thinking. So instead of, you know, how do we fix something, getting everyone in the room and asking them, how do we make it worse? What are the pain points? How does that become really discussed? How could, instead of getting customers, how do we lose customers? How do we lose users? And that really surfaces the areas that, that actually cause genuine pain. And once you then start doing some affinity mapping of those concepts, yep. it becomes very clear where the areas you need to focus on first are. I like that. I think that's great. Handled in the right way. I can see stakeholders getting a bit nervous about that. But uh, I think it's got a lot of power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much everything, Gav. I, we've come to the end of kind of... Uh, you know, this chat. And thank you so much for sharing all of that fantastic insight. It's been really great. It's been lovely to chat to you as always. And um, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please like or comment on it on Apple Podcasts or Podbean and feel free to share it more widely so others have a chance to listen as well. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Katie John, Head of User Research with a digital agency, Caution Your Blast, in London. They're a great bunch of talented digital folks who I've had the pleasure of working with recently. And I look forward to sharing her wisdom, experience, and views on user-centered research and design with you all. Till then, stay safe and stay user-centered. <laughs>